Hey everybody, it's Talking Jake here, and I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, executives, Maria Sharapova, Strahan, Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into those worlds of sports, media, and entertainment. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. It is Wednesday, February the 22nd, 2023. Welcome, everybody, to episode 77 of Toe in the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's pitching talk each and every week. We do it with the former Cy Young Award winner and the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research master, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle. Producer Dan Rourke is here as well. And everyone across Major League Baseball has now reported for spring training. It should be a really happy time, and it is. Uh, you know, it emits feelings of, of hope and joy. And yet, guys, there is a lot of talk over the last week or so about the economic side of Major League Baseball. We have a lot of owners speak, a lot of business talk throughout this sport. I can't remember a time where spring training is beginning and we're having this much dialogue from team ownership around the league. How does that make you feel, David? You know, there's an old saying in politics is, is don't squander a good crisis. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it kind of feels like that's what's going on with Rob Manfred and major league baseball is obviously it's a crisis situation. If there's bankruptcy with, with, uh, with what's going on with the regional sports networks and obviously Sinclair. So if that happens and payments are not made, then that gives major league baseball a chance to sort of reimagine the whole landscape including moving forward and and how the, the the sport's going to be consumed and streaming media venues on down the road so yeah it kind of feels like uh, that the, they're viewing this at least some people in major league Base, baseball are viewing this as an opportunity to sort of reimagine the whole landscape and how revenue is shared equally among all teams all right, so you think the the crisis with the regional networks is something that is leading to this is this is an open window for maybe some owners to uh, address what they feel is wrong with the sport. Absolutely. Sometimes okay. it, it, t- it takes a crisis to to bring about a potential opportunity to do things a completely different way. And uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's certainly kind of the thinking behind the scenes and some of the reporting that's been done. Uh, behind the scenes as well sign us kind of suggests that that's the case and and it, and it makes sense if you think about it moving forward uh, it's all about the the local revenue and the difference in sports the NFL and the NBA they share all their television revenue revenue equally because it's all, all a national deal baseball's all about regional all about the local the local politics uh, really play big in, in major league baseball so it's really hard to get all the owners on the same page and agree and that's always been the problem going back to the strike in 1994 it was really about the large market and the small market owners it's always been a battle amongst owners themselves before you even bring the players into the equation in case you're unfamiliar with what we're talking about here to start the show with the uh, regional sports networks bally sports um you know there's 14 teams in major league baseball who have uh, a Bally Sports regional network as their home for their team's major league broadcasts. The broadcast rights are paid to the team from Bally Sports. Bally's parent company, Sinclair Broadcasting, is really inching toward bankruptcy. So there's a chance where some paychecks are going to be uh, unable to be cut to major league teams. It's it's potentially in the works in the near future if they do declare bankruptcy. But we uh, we have... Every team, 
with their pitchers and catchers and their players now, uh, you know, being reported to spring training. We're going to break down this episode, which pitchers have the most to prove in 2023. So we'll talk about that. We'll discuss how real and also like how bogus some of the, uh, the economic talk is around major league baseball, major league baseball formed an economic reform committee. So we'll, Try and explain what that's all about. We'll talk about the arbitration process with two high-profile pitchers and Corbin Burns and Max Freed. I'm wondering if Steve Cohen has kind of taken another step toward becoming the uh, modern-day George Steinbrenner. So that'll kind of lead us into uh, some Yankees dialogue as well. Because it seems like everyone is overthinking the left field situation. There was a good report from the New York Post there. The Yankees have sort of, kind of identified a left fielder that could be in play in 2023. But first up, it is the opener, like we do each and every episode here on Toe in the Slab. David, what do you have for this week to open us up? Well, obviously, we lost one of the great ones in Tim McCarver, longtime catcher, caught Bob Gibson for the Cardinals, longtime great broadcaster, did several World Series uh, over the years with, with Joe Buck, uh, was Johnny on the spot. You know, I feel like my whole career was Tim McCarver. I was with the Mets in the 80s. He was broadcasting locally there for the Mets, um, and then with the Yankees after the Mets, he went over there. He was in the booth on the day I threw my perfect game with Bobby Mercer. I feel so fortunate to have known Tim and talked to him and considered him a friend. It's a huge loss uh, for the industry. What a, what an unbelievable guy. What an unbelievable broadcaster. Uh, he really did kind of uh, set the trend for the modern day broadcaster. He was the guy who first guessed everything, who was really kind of an old school strategist in terms of defensive placement and strategy on the field and second guessing managers before it happened. Uh, he really taught a lot of people about the game, about the inside strategy of baseball for, for, for a lot of fans that never heard that, that sort of commentary before. So he really was a trailblazer. He was a good friend, a great guy. He will be sorely missed. So tip of the cap to Tim McCarver and our condolences to his family, because he really, did leave his mark on major league baseball well said and he also had a 21 year big league career 1959 to 1980 spanning four decades and Shaq I mean we're of that age uh, growing up in, in the 90s he was one of the voices of October he called 24 world series between 1985 and 2013 baseball won't be the same without him yeah I mean not just for the postseason in the uh, generation that James and I grew up in, but locally uh, for Yankee games, I mean, between the games that they had on, on channel five on Fox, New York. Um, I mean, he was part of MSG's broadcast crew for, for the Yankees as well. But like you mentioned him and Bobby Mercer and Jim Cott, Ken Singleton, like those are the guys. And then you had like Al Troutwig on the pre and post and, and Tim McCarver, if you, wanted to walk away from watching a baseball game, a smarter baseball fan. It was probably because you listened to Tim McCarver. Um, David, like, did he ever talk to you about what it was like broadcasting your perfect game? Uh, yeah, he did. I got a chance to talk to him quite a bit about it. Uh, it was remarkable. The, the, I, the thing I learned from Tim McCarver is that he was very proactive throughout uh, his broadcasting career, especially in strategic situations, like I mentioned before, but he also knew when to lay out. And if you listen to the ninth inning and in particular, the last out of my perfect game, you know, it was just a pop-up to Brocious and that was it. He kind of laid out and let the scene 
develop and unfold. He had an uncanny ability to understand when to shut up, when to get out of the way and let the pitcher tell the story, which is probably one of the most important things for broadcasters, when to shut the hell up. You know, Sometimes broadcasters talk too much and, and try to talk over the crowd noise, and that's a huge mistake. So he was a master of that. Um, he was so gracious because he knew my career so well. He saw me develop with the Mets. He saw me uh, through my Yankee years. He was there for all the World Series, you know, the, the four times with with the Yankees, and then in 92 with the Blue Jays. So, yeah, there was a lot. There was just a lot of meat on the bone there for, for us to talk about over the years. And we talked about strategy, about how I evolved as a pitcher more than anything. And we talked about Bob Gibson a lot and about the end of Bob Gibson's career and how he evolved as a pitcher. So to me, that's what I talked to Tim McCarver more about than anything from the evolution as a young kind of a power pitcher with the Mets to the Yankee years when I became more of a, a breaking ball artist and threw a lot more breaking balls uh, before it was in vogue to do so. I, I remember a lot of people kind of criticized me in the 90s with the Yankees for throwing so many breaking balls, and I knew that was my best pitch at that point, and I figured I better throw my best pitch more often, and now that's kind of a thing in vogue to do now, and uh, I kind of laugh when I hear that. It's I kind of been there and done that, you know, but it, it was uh, – it was slow to materialize as a popular thing to do in, in Major League Baseball among pitching coaches. It, Tim McCarver, between his playing career, uh, broadcasting career, I know once he stopped calling postseason or World Series games on Fox, he still did a little work uh, for the Cardinals. But, I mean, before what I think the majority of baseball fans know him for, again, that network postseason work, James and I, again, watching him with the Yankee games, him calling a game uh, that, you know, you were in just, he, he resonates with the 1990s uh, Yankee fan. And you think about it, the main broadcasters for the Yankees in that time was a guy from Memphis, Tennessee, and a guy from Oklahoma <laughs> and former players who were doing play by play as well, breaking down strategy uh, again, beginning, uh, you know, thinking and, and, just saying out loud what they thought could happen next. No one did it better than than Tim McCarver. So uh, condolences to he and his family. A big loss uh, for the game of baseball. All right. Uh, like we said, all pitchers have reported to spring training here. We are off and running. So as, as we begin this episode here this week, I want to hear what you guys have to say when I ask for one starting pitcher and one reliever who you think has the most to prove in 2023. Give me a pair. Well, a lot of choices, James. I know. I mean, we, we, we talked about this guy last year. I mean, it, it, is there anybody more important in Toronto than Jose Barrios in the year he had last year, kind of struggling and the seven year deal he signed last year for a little over $130 million. It's going to be there for six more years through 2028. So he's a really important piece to the Blue Jays in their rotation. But another guy I'd like to mention who's finally getting a chance to start in San Diego, at least we assume he'll get that chance as of now, will be Seth Lugo. So you talk about something to prove, a guy who's always wanted to start, one of the best high-spin curveballs in the game. I mean, he's got a buzzsaw for a curveball. It's regularly in the mid-3,000s in terms of RPM and spin rate. So it'd be interesting to see if he finally gets a shot to be a starter as well. I like those picks. Um I'm going to go with, it sounds like a little bit of a chalk uh, kind of pick, but I'm going with Jacob deGrom moving from Queens out to Texas, signing the big contract. Everyone is on eggshells uh, worrying about his health. He averaged 192 innings over a five-year span from 2015 to 2019. 
pitched a, the full season in 2020 as well, even though it was only 12 starts, but he didn't miss a game in 2020. But the last two years have been uh, shaky in the health department, 92 innings in 2021, 64 last year. This is going to be his age 35 season. And with all eyes on Texas as, a, as an ascendant team, it's going to be all built around what do they get out of DeGrom? See, there's a number of directions where you can kind of meet toward, hey, who has the most to prove here? You could talk about a guy who's had trouble staying healthy, a guy who you're trying to tell your team, hey, let him eat, let him, you know, break him loose here, or uh, can can you show me it again, so to speak? So I'm coming from the department of, hey, let's see it again. And I'm actually picking Alec Manoa from the Blue Jays. Now you say, wow, 25 year, years old, kind of established himself as one of the game's top young pitchers. And I think that's the case here, but I think he has to show that he can become the leader of that starting rotation. And I don't believe Toronto can afford to have a guy like Alec Manoa regress in 2023. Again, he's emerged as one of the best young starting pitchers in baseball. I think he has the opportunity to become perhaps the top starting pitcher in the AL East. And that's saying something that like you need a heavyweight title around your waist to be, uh, to become the best pitcher of that division. I think that's on the table for him this year. Can he repeat that type of performance that he put up in 2022 or even do better? I think there's room for him to even uh, do better, raise the ceiling, so to speak. So if he does, I think it's going to be like a tone setter for a team that probably if you had to ask the question on a team-wide level, I think the Blue Jays have the most to prove in baseball this year. So I'm going with Manoa here. I like it. The Blue Jays are a sleepy giant. They own the country of Canada. <laughs> you talk about a market size. You know, they, they have a country. They have a nation behind them. So, yeah, we I've always, you know, having played in Toronto, I understand it. They are a sleeping giant. Uh, they are ready to bust out. They've got some stadium renovations going on up there, too. I'm anxious to see the Rogers Center as they've kind of remodeled it or done some renovations there to give it a whole different fresh and fresh and uh, fresh look. So a lot of things going on in Toronto right now. All right. Give me your reliever that has the most to prove in 2023. Uh, a couple of guys, you know, and not too far from home, certainly Clay Holmes with the Yankees. Can he be the guy he was in the first half where he was just so dominant? And with that sinker and, and just so efficient and then kind of struggled with his control a little bit, then kind of got it back at the end. Is he the guy for the Yankees? Uh, but, but for me up in Boston, Kenley Jansen is, is uh, going to going to try the American league. East, going to pitch at Fenway park, but more importantly, he's going to have to pitch with a pitch clock. And of all the pitchers out there that you think about, and especially in terms of relievers that work very slowly, they have a lot of little idiosyncrasies and a lot of little hitches in his giddy-up and his wind-up, so to speak. He's a guy that's going to be impacted by the pitch clock. It's going to be interesting to see how he adjusts to all that. Those are two guys that were high on my list. I'm going with Josh Hader. I think he, has, he really needs to bounce back. This is one of the best relievers in baseball for a few years, and now – 2022 was a disaster for him, a 5-2-2 ERA. He's got to get back on track. Yeah, I think if we all had to pick like a pound-for-pound pound guy who to to prove the most in 2023, something to prove, it is Josh Hader, probably to, to shut up a lot of people. I'm wondering what his mindset is heading into this season because there was brilliance at the very beginning, right? There is a lot of ugliness in the middle for uh, a two-month period or so but then he finished really strong so people are kind of seeing the totality of 
all of that. It's not the prettiest stat line compared to what we've seen from Hader in the past. So uh, they're kind of judging off that, but he did finish strong. Um, uh, I feel like that's probably the correct answer in all of this, but it's all subjective. It's also, I forgot to mention, it's his walk year. So he'll be a free agent at the end of the season. Big platform for him. So I had Clay Holmes on my list. I also had Kenley Jansen. I was kind of going to lump Jansen with Craig Kimbrell and Aroldis Chapman together. I, I think all three have various levels of, of responsibility with their new teams. And David hit on a lot of the points with Kenley Jansen, but a lot can also be true for a guy like Craig Kimbrell, who's going to be looked upon and dependent as a, a, an important piece to the Phillies bullpen. But like all three, they have had wonderful careers. It, Feels like the sun is setting a bit on this era of, of great closers from the last decade. But can can they just show us not only can they battle the uh, the new elements that they're going to be facing with the pitch clock. They're all slow to the plate. They're all slow between pitches. I'm also wondering how the pitch clock affects their their stamina, really. Like, are we going to see pitcher fatigue? Because these guys, it feels like they all again, they take a lot of time between pitches, but and I'm not saying they're all the fireballers that uh, some were over the last decade, but they put a lot of effort into each individual pitch. What is that stamina? What is the pitcher fatigue going to look like for those three in 2023? So uh, the, the, the top three closers from the last decade here, can they prove that they can still hang in, in an era that I think is uh, kind of transformative at this point with the new rules and the way things are going? And can they prove that uh, Father Time's not, not biting them on the butt just yet? That along with a potential uh, increase in the running game as well. And th those type of relievers are the ones that are notoriously slow to home plate as well. It's not only slow to deliver the ball, it's even during the del their delivery in and of itself is slow. So uh, will we see them get taken advantage of in the running game as well? And the bigger bases only can throw over twice to first base. So, yes, there's so many factors involved now with the new rules and the rules changes that remain to be seen that are really interesting follows. And one of them is the running game. And uh, that, that goes right to the heart of short relievers. You know, you lead off walk, steal second, steal third. You get a man on third with nobody out. So are we going to see that? with some of these relievers that are really slow to home plate. All right. Late last week, guys, something that we were talking about at the very top of this episode, it came out that major league baseball has created an economic reform committee. Commissioner Rob Manfred said that it was created for two reasons that the local media situation, like we were discussing with the, uh, the regional sports networks and the Bally sports situation and also because in layman's terms, there are some owners who are upset uh, about the difference in profits that teams make across the board. You have Steve Cohen into the mix, the Padres, who are kind of perceived as a small to mid-market franchise doing a great job spending money. It poses the question here, how much progress was actually made with the new CBA, which is less than a year old? Well, the, the the one silver lining in this sort of new economic reform committee is that it's only owners that are on this committee. And it's really a, a vehicle for owners to talk amongst themselves, talk to each other. And that's always been the problem, communication among the owners, what they see as a problem. Rob Manfred, the commissioner, talks about revenue disparity. We all know about the models in Major League Baseball are different compared to the other sports because of the regional sports networks. They're, that's where the disparity comes from. 
uh, it's it certainly uh, major media markets are going to bring in more revenue for their local teams than smaller markets. It's just, just the nature of the business, nature of the television business. But as we move forward and then we get everything under one umbrella in terms of what's the model going to be in terms of streaming and how, how this sport is going to be consumed in the future. And does that present an opportunity for owners to all get on the same page? And I was interested to see that uh, Rob Manfred also mentioned blackout rules. It's the first time I've heard him talk about that. I thought that was, that was music to my heart because I'm an anti-blackout guy. I've been pretty pretty uh, vocal about it. It would be nice for baseball fans to be able to consume whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they are. So if we can get to that point, that's you know that that's that's a win for the fans. But just the fact that we have owners talking to each other about revenue disparity is an important thing. Uh, and and it's starting now. I I applaud Rob Manfred for that. I think that's a good thing. Get it started now. Instead of perennially waiting till the last minute, and then you have a labor dispute, then you have a lockout, or you have a strike, everything that we've seen in the past, do everything you can to avoid that now. It's a good idea, and Tony, you hit the nail on the head at the top of the show about this being owner versus owner. We talked about that a lot during the lockout coverage last year, too. It's the same kind of dynamic here, and I think it's misguided because if you look at everyone a lot of the owners are upset about Steve Cohen. Well, if you compare Cohen to the other top payroll clubs today, it is not nearly as much of a gap as there was in the two thousands when the Yankees were outpacing the Red Sox and the rest of the league. So it is a little strange that, Oh, now that the Mets and the Padres are jumping in now that now it's a big crisis. And I think it might just be that is, is it, is the presence of a small market San Diego jumping into the pool here is, and that's making the other uh, owners who aren't spending look worse. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. If th- look, if this is going to improve communication across the board and over a steady amount of time between owners across major league baseball, it's hard to disagree that it's not a good idea, but it is funny. And James kind of alluded to it. Uh, it's it's ironic and you kind of have to, you know, look at it tongue in cheek. Um, OK, it's happening now. Like Buster only had a terrific tweet yesterday. I think like summed up the whole situation. He goes, you know, look, acute team tanking has been a problem for baseball for a decade without public complaint from other teams, without even out loud acknowledgement of the practice. Now the Mets and Padres spend big and they're forming a special committee. Really? And that sums it up right there. Like you're talking on both ends of your mouth. All of a sudden, now is the ideal time to have this happen. Uh, you could have done it over the last decade for the complete opposite reason, because teams weren't spending enough kind of alienating fan bases, pouring cold water on fan excitement by tempering expectations with uh, with your wallet as a team, so to speak. So, yeah, bring out a, a system where there's going to be terrific communication and consistent communication, I should say, between the owners. That's always a good thing. Why it hasn't happened in the past it seems kind of logical. You have such a, a big operation going that is Major League Baseball. But now that it's happened because a few teams are you know spending and looking to win, I think the Phillies and their owner, John Middleton, another, he had a, gave a great all-time quote uh, over the weekend. Uh, now you're you're kind of putting all this together. It's just a, a bad optic that, again, owners are not on the same page here at all. Um, that, that quote from Middleton was awesome. I had to send it to, to the group chat uh, over the weekend. Yeah, I've got it here. Um, 
good stuff from Middleton here. How much money did the 27 Yankees make or the 29 A's or the 75, 76 big red machine? Does anybody know? Does anybody care? Nobody knows or cares whether any of them made any money or not. And nobody cares whether I make money or not. If my legacy is that I didn't lose any money owning a baseball team on an annual operating basis, that's a pretty sad legacy. It's all about putting trophies in the cases. That is the kind of attitude that every sports team owner should have. And if that is the owner of your favorite team, you should be doing cartwheels. It's a great they quote. Have, yeah. <laughs> they should have. It's about putting trophies in the cases on the top of every team headquarters, every, you know, at the entrance of every team facility. It should be at the, the masthead of every piece of paper that comes out of a, a team's organization. It is a money quote. And I applaud John Middleton for that for sure. Um, Mets owner Steve Cohen came out and held an informal press conference in Port St. Lucie at Mets spring training. And he also revealed that the team may go all season without a team president. He said that Sandy Alderson is now just an advisor to the Mets. And he also revealed that he's become more involved in day-to-day operations. He's sitting in on team meetings weekly. There's one day a week where he completely devotes his time to the Mets to uh, all things going on throughout the, the organization, but also on the baseball side, he's, he's designated that one day aside from his other business ventures. And for me, it's like, it's look, it's one thing to have a great pulse on the organization that you own and you should be doing that. But guys, how prudent is it for the team owner to ingratiate himself in baseball decisions? Well, you have to you have to understand we're in the day and age of analytics, and uh, there are reports that Steve Cohen brought some of his quantitative analysts from his hedge fund over to the Mets office to help out and sort of cross pollinate some of the talent. And uh, certainly, there are a lot of similarities between the analysis that's done among hedge fund and the numbers and the crunching of numbers there, and the predictive nature of those type of numbers and baseball numbers. Very similar sort of uh, approach. So. I would be more worried if there wasn't a general manager in place. I see Billy Epler as the most important guy there. Billy Epler, Brian Cashman's former guy, brought up uh, under Gene Stick, Michael. Buck Showalter has enormous respect for him because of that. Gene Stick, Michael, was a big part of Buck Showalter's Yankee years. So Billy Epler is a much bigger piece of the puzzle there than he's been given credit for. If Steve Cohen wants to come in once a week and – and go over everything, and that's fine. You know, that, that actually I like a, an owner to be involved as far as that goes, as long as he defers to to, to the uh, the people that dedicate their lives to it, the Billy Eplers and Buck Showalters of the world. So I, I think that is what's happening. Those are the reports that I've heard coming out of the Mets, and when I talk to Buck, that's the way it's run there. So it, the president of operations in baseball today is more of a – all-encompassing sponsorship, business, television, more of the business behind the scenes, stadium operations, as opposed to just baseball decisions. And uh, Billy Epler's a strong GM, well-prepared for that job. I think the Mets are, are in better shape than than you think they are, even if they don't have a president, president in place. Yeah, well said on the GM bit. And as far as Cohen goes, it's a fine line between being involved and being too meddlesome. So. I think we're we're far enough away where we don't have to worry about it quite yet or else you don't want him to end up becoming Jerry Jones with the Cowboys, you know, where he's too involved. Yeah, I think for a guy like Steve Cohen, you don't get to where you're at by micromanaging. You know, you have a lot of 
trustful people around you. And he's obviously built that here with his latest venture. That is uh, the New York Mets. Um, two guys that we're really high on and two situations that we've talked on uh, at a glance this offseason. Corbin Burns, Max Freed, they reported a spring training. They met with reporters for the first time. And the biggest topic with those two, with Freed and Burns, are on their respective losses in their arbitration hearings. Uh, Burns's comments indicated that his relationship with the Brewers has been damaged. And it essentially, the way he was speaking, represents, I think, the end result that players and teams really fear when they go to arbitration hearings. Uh, he and the Brewers went to arbitration over a difference of $740,000. And Burns said that he wasn't mad about the process, but Milwaukee's approach was lame and pretty unnecessary. And that's me summarizing it, by the way. But that's because the, the Brewers apparently argued that Burns was the reason the team didn't make the postseason as to why he should receive their proposed salary and not his. On the flip side with Freed, his comments were more reserved. He he lost, but he said he wasn't angry. He wasn't upset with the organization that he was open to an extension with the Braves as well if they want to have that dialogue. And uh, again, I bring these two specific cases up because they involve two pitchers that we agree they're among the very best in the game right now. And Ken Rosenthal wrote an article for The Athletic that the players and the league, they're both complaining about the process of arbitration. But... Given Burns's case, I'm wondering what's more damage. Uh, what what causes more damage to the player team relationships in arbitration? Is it the process or is it the approach by the teams? You know, a lot of times these teams are farming out the process to a to outside firm. You know, it's not as if the general manager of each individual team is going to go in and argue the case. A lot of times that that job is farmed out to to some sort of a specialist in arbitration and it's outside counsel, so to speak. So when you get into the arbitration process, you're limited to the type of numbers and the type of analysis you can use and that, and also who you can compare to you're, you're limited to his class of players, whether that's Burns or freed. So it, it is an inexact process. I, I understand that, but there's always, one statement that potentially can really piss off a player. And it sounds like that's what happened with Corbin Burns rather than just doing comps sort of like real estate. And, you know, if you have anybody's ever been in a real estate deal, you know what a, you know, a competitive market analysis is you understand, okay, this house down the street sold for this, this house across the street sold for this, this neighborhood's average median price is this. And generally if you stick to that kind of a process and argue about where you fit into the market, then you can kind of uh, understand that as a player. But if it gets personal, and it sounds like that's what happened here, and I don't know, I'm just going on by what Corbin Burns said, but to bring that into the process of Corbin Burns is the reason we didn't make the postseason, that is a low blow. That is, a, it sounds like, and I'm just going on what I've heard by the reports. I don't know for sure, but if that is what happened, that is a low blow, and he's got a right to be a little bit pissed off about it. It's part of the business. And it doesn't have to go over the line. Uh, during this spring, there have been a lot of other arbitration stories where there isn't this kind of animosity, even though it goes to a hearing. The player wants X, the, the team wants Y. And even if the player loses their case, they say well, nothing personal about it. That's just the nature of the business. And the team is making their case too. They have a right to make their case. But when you cross, this seems like it was something crossing the line 
because it this we don't really see something like this where a team might go over the line criticizing a player, a very important player who's won a Cy Young and is one of the best pitchers in the game. But to have that on top of this, it's very uh, it's very concerning. Uh, if you're Corbin Burns and if you're a Brewers fan, you start to wonder, is this something that could poison the well for Burns' future with the team? If you're like on the team side and you are, you know, having an, an outsourced uh, individual kind of represent your case, it, it feels like a quote like that, that crossed the line, came from the mouth of someone who didn't watch a single pitch thrown by Corbin Burns or a Milwaukee Brewers game in in 2022 like is that where we're at with how these are are litigated yeah we, we don't really know we're obviously just speculating only corbin burns can answer that question and mm -hmm. the teams are involved in the process to a certain extent but they, there's a these these cases are extremely complex and they require a lot of hours of preparation to put together the you know the the individual cases on either side so that's the part that's usually farmed out to outside counsel or to experts in, in that situation. The Major League Baseball has a wealth of, of people that they can sort of resources they can tap into to, to hire people to help them with arbitration cases. So, uh, you know, I'd be surprised if Milwaukee didn't utilize somebody like that. But the general manager can still be involved. And maybe there's one quote in there that, that got through that that potentially could be what Corbin Burns is talking about. But we don't really know for sure. All we know is his reaction. And the way that he alluded to the fact that one single player can bear responsibility for not making the postseason when you're a starting pitcher and all you can do is do your job. You don't, you don't control run support. You don't control defense. That's why we have war. That's why you have modern analytics to sort of assess value and, and give value to, to the proper places to give credit where credit is due. And to make a general statement like that, Oh, well, you're the reason why we didn't make the postseason. If indeed that is the case, and as described by Corbin Burns, and then he, as I said, I'm like, what? He does have, he does have sort of a right. How, what was said? How was it said? Who was it said by? And what did they mean? And you absolutely have a right to be angry about that. Yeah, we don't know exactly what was said and by whom. But if a line comes uh, out of the mouth of someone like that from from the team side, I have to imagine that a, a decision maker especially on the baseball op side of things. Once, once that sentence was uttered out of the mouth of whoever said it, like you have serious uh, situation of like head and face right there by that guy yeah. in, in baseball wow. ops uh, with, with Corbin Burns here and that. Um, all right. So Burns and freed both set to hit free agency after 2024, uh, which players contract situation interests you more after hearing about the results of their latest arbitration case. Well, they're both unique and that they're both four, four year players. So they have two more years. They're not, they're not free agents for two more years. So it's kind of a question of organizational philosophy. They're both interesting in that Atlanta likes to lock their players up early. Otherwise they, they tend to move on. And then Milwaukee's always been the kind of a team that cuts bait when they have to at the last minute. Example, Josh Hader now in San Diego under the same circumstances. So uh, the fact that there's a little bit of bad blood makes you want to follow Corbett Burns. 
But I see Max Fried the same way because he's he's so resolute. Max Fried is the way he handled his press conference. It was sort of the polar opposite of Corbin Burns. Hey, this is just a business. I get it. I understand. I love Atlanta. I'd love to stay as long as the, the numbers make sense. He said all the right things, which leads me to believe he's he's not going to take less than what he thinks he's worth. He's going to let it go ahead and play out. He has supreme confidence in his ability. They're both in their mid-20s maybe getting up to their upper 20s. They both are, are just reaching their prime. Why not? Why not let the dice roll? And so I, I, normally I'd say Corbin Burns because of the bad blood, but Max Reed really interests me now because this guy, he, he looks like a Terminator to me. Like, you know, hey, nothing's going to bother this guy, and he's going to get his worth no matter what. I'm going to go with Burns, not just because of the fireworks we got this week, but also because I'm more confident in the Braves putting, paying up. And, and when the time comes, even if it is free agency, they'll just pay him his fair market rate and he'll be a brave for life. Yeah, I feel like Freed's situation is going to extend all the way to his free agency. So whether it is him re-signing with the Braves or them letting him walk the way they did with Freddie Freeman or Dansby Swanson, I think that's the scenario there. I feel like Burns isn't going to reach free agency after – a campaign with the Brewers. I think he's a, a prime candidate to be traded as soon as this trade deadline. So when you think about it that way, yeah, it creates a little juice to see where a guy like Corbin Burns could wind up. Who's going to offer to kind of pay the package to get a Corbin Burns. Cause that's more likely uh, to be seen versus the Brewers paying the increase in, in salary for Burns on his way to free agency, let alone what he could command in free agency. So I'll go with Burns just by default because I think an outcome arrives sooner uh, than Max Freed's. All right, guys, big discussion and question that has been floating around the New York Yankees for this entire offseason, essentially since their season ended in the ALCS, is what the solution will be for them in left field. How are they going to address that position? And Joel Sherman of the New York Post, he kind of uncovered uh, a bit of dirt, I guess, there's a lot of tight-lipped discussions around the Yankees organization. They never let a detail squeak by here. They didn't make a big left-field addition in the offseason. But Joel Sherman wrote that Aaron Judge could actually see time in left field. And it's a way to get Giancarlo Stanton back in the outfield because Stanton has been primarily a DH ever since his first season in pinstripes. So... Is Aaron Judge actually a, I would guess, a part-time solution? I don't want to say the solution, but could he be a part-time solution in left field? And is that enough? Can the Yankees afford to just have a part-time solution as they address the left field position? Well, as it stands now, it's it's an outside-the-box kind of an answer, and it makes sense. Aaron Judge has already signed long-term, so you're not asking him to go to unfamiliar territory in his walk year. He's secure for life. Uh, the Yankees obviously need Giancarlo Stanton in the outfield uh, as much as they can because that frees up the whole roster. It allows DJ LeMahieu either to play third base or DH or Josh Donaldson third base or DH or somebody else's bat to get into the lineup, whoever that may be. So, yes, I, I would, wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of experiment or to see how it looks at least on, on certain occasions. Maybe not every day. 
you know, as, as, a, as a complete solution, but why not? Yeah, absolutely. Giancarlo, you're in right. Aaron Judge, you're in left. DJ LeMahieu, you're the DH today. You got everybody in there. It seems like the Yankees are going to give Josh Donaldson one more shot to play third base to see if he can rebound. Uh, and then obviously the shortstop situation will solve itself, whoever, whoever the shortstop is going to be. So other than that, you're kind of set, uh, you know, at that point. And, and as the roster stands right now, without a big trade for a left fielder. Yeah, it makes sense to try it. Emphasis, as always, with Stanton is going to be on health. And I think it's important to note that this would be a part-time solution. Now, last year, Stanton played 38 games in the outfield. And Judge, he's going to be busy with his regular job as the right fielder. So if he's in right, then it's just business as usual. And you can have a rotating uh, uh revolving door of sorts with Cabrera Hicks, whoever you want to put out there. Now Stanton can show he can play the field a bit, make things easier for him in right field at Yankee stadium. And then you can move judge over. Maybe you wouldn't have wanted to do that last year because that was before the center field experiment. Once judge showed that he was capable in center, I think it made things a lot easier to maybe think of doing something like this. Judge is an elite right fielder. One of the best in the game. He will have no problem whatsoever playing left field, even if Yankee Stadium's left field is a bit more expansive. I think this is a complete non-issue and something we might only see if it happens 30 times and it gives them flexibility and one-fifth of the games to put Stanton in right and free up the DH spot for somebody else. Have at it. How much defense do you think you'd be giving up in center field, say, if you have Aaron Judge go play center field for a chunk of games and move Harrison Bader over to left field because we know what judge could be in center field. Maybe he's more comfortable there. Do you cater to him that much? Uh, that remains to be seen. You know, that's, that's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, Harrison Bader can play anywhere. I like the idea of Harrison Bader covering Death Valley in center field. I think judge is a great athlete. He can handle left field. Um, left field, uh, you know, and of course, right field is, is with the short porch is the preferable place to put uh, Giancarlo Stanton. So I'm not sure if it's worth that much of a headache, you know, whether it's Bader and left or judge and left or, or whether you flip it and keep judge more comfortable in center. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's worth it to really worry about that as much, you know, maybe that becomes an issue on down the road, but just the fact that you can get all three of those guys in the outfield is the key. You know, as James perfectly said, if it's 30 games, 40 games, whatever that is, that can really help. Because to me, if you're really committed to Josh Donaldson at third and you're going to give him a legitimate chance to rebound and, and, and resurrect his career, then you need to get DJ LeMahieu in the lineup. It's really important that DJ LeMahieu is in that lineup. His contact skills, his on-base skills, the first half DJ LeMahieu of last year really is important piece to get into that lineup for the Yankees. And yeah, I know he can move around. He can play a little first base. He can play second, but for the most part, when you want your full Monte lineup, your full Monte lineup is John Carlo judge and DJ LeMahieu all in the lineup. And the only way you can do that is if either you sit Josh Donaldson a third and let DJ LeMahieu play third, or you have DJ DH or Donaldson DH early in the year and find out if these, if, if, if Donaldson's going to resurrect his career. Yeah. You, you have a lot of outlets kind of projecting what their starting lineup will look like uh, for the New York Yankees. And like more than one 
don't have DJ LeMayhew in it. Like, no, DJ LeMayhew is arguably one of the biggest X factors, not just for the offense, but for the team in general. Like, he's going to be there. He needs to be in the leadoff spot as well. So you have to find a way for DJ LeMayhew to have a, an everyday role, whether it is at different positions. He needs to be in there uh, each and every day. Uh, let's end this discussion with with Yankee talk. Oh, you know, oh, go ahead, David. Sorry, sorry. You no, 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 not at all. I, I was just saying that the DH spot gives DJ LeMahieu a little protection too, coming off of his injury as well. So, if you can get thirty or forty games with him at DH, it might be a difference maker for him to stay healthy as well. Uh, one of the other bigger X factors as we close out this episode is the back end of the starting rotation. Now, Frankie Montas, I think it's safe to say that you should probably not count on him for anything in 2023. If he gives you anything, if he's back in time, well, that's gravy. But as far as the back end of the rotation goes, we know the candidates right now internally, Domingo Herman, Clark Schmidt. It was revealed that Clark Schmidt has added and developed a cutter. Uh, what kind of pitcher could Schmidt be? if this is an effective pitch against left-handed hitters? Well, that's a big deal for lefties, especially. You're right. I mean, if you're going to be a starting pitcher and try to get two and three times through an order, you need to keep lefties honest inside. Uh, and it's a big deal. Um, I still think Clark Schmidt has never had problems spinning a baseball. He has elite spin rate on all of his breaking stuff, whether it's a slider, a curveball, or a cutter. That's his nat. That's his bread and butter. That's his natural ability to be able to spin a baseball, get tight spin, get movement on it, get quick movement on it. I think the question for him is spotting his fastball, being able to get it in decent locations, and then occasionally mixing a changeup too. That's the other part. The the, the complement to a cutter into a lefty is a changeup fading down and away. It's the exact opposite pitch of a cutter. And to me, that's the one-two punch that you need to get lefties out. I know that's what I did later in my career was come up with a cutter in the lefties and throw that splitter and take a little bit off of my splitter and make it more like a changeup and get it to fade down and away to a lefty. That one, two punch really helped me later in my career when I lost a little velocity, Clark Schmidt's fastball command is an issue and he needs to prove that he can do that as a starting pitcher. Spinning a baseball has never been a problem for Clark Schmidt. He can do that with the best of them. This is part of the, development going from the bullpen to the rotation right so if we we're going to find out if he really is going to step into that open rotation spot if he can pull this off one thing that uh, took me a little bit by surprise until you posed the question uh before we recorded is that uh, schmidt does have a pretty uh, wide platoon split um if we're looking at his uh, average and ops uh last season sorry to to pour some numbers on you but last year righties hit 192 against him Lefties 268, and the OPS jumped from 548 to 797. His career averages, 203 average against righties, 297 against lefties. So this is something that might be able to mitigate that a bit. And uh, just as far as his usage, he's more slider sinker uh, against against righties and then lefties curveball four seam, but the four seam less effective. So hopefully uh, the cutter is, a, is an instrument that, uh, that can help him take a leap here. Yeah, could be an added weapon. Uh, I think, you know, we've said it a few episodes back, Herman, Schmidt, which way the Yankees go, that's something that's going to uh, kind of sort itself out near the near the end of spring training. I'd personally like to see them give a shot to Clark Smith, give him an extended run, see what they have with him as a starter. Cutter could be a, another weapon there in the arsenal there for for Clark Schmidt. And James, don't, don't apologize for dropping numbers. I mean, <laughs> we need... 
an unapologetical approach from James Smythe when it comes to stats and research and, and, and number dropping. So no, no, don't apologize. Apology not accepted. Throw it right back at you. <laughs> Man. All right, that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Uh, look, anything that we should be on the lookout for here because we release episodes and then uh, a news item kind of drops here. So uh, anything that's uh, out there that you want to forecast? Eyes on the young Yankee pitchers. Johnny Brito lit up batting practice, according to reports who saw him throw. So that's where my eyes are on the young Yankee next in line, potential starting pitching. I think it's really important issue for the Yankees. Johnny Brito lighten it up in his first batting practice session. Well, around the league games are going to be starting soon. Grapefruit league, cactus league. So we'll actually have some baseball to watch uh, starting uh, on yes, Sunday at one o'clock against the Braves. Uh, our first spring training game is going to be on Sunday, the 26th. So uh, check it out. Here we go. Yeah, by this uh, by this time next week, spring training games in Arizona and Florida will be well underway. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do not miss a single thing with what we are streaming each and every week here on the show. Uh, for David Cohn, for James Smythe, our fantastic producer, Dan Rourke, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care. Hey, everybody, it's Talking Jake here, and I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, executives, Maria Sharapova, Strahan, Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into those worlds of sports, media, and entertainment. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.